I see you shiver with anticipation. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. Make it three yards, motherfucker, and we'll have an automobile race. I'll leave you. I'll leave you, baby. I'll leave you. Now leave me alone. Private Charles Pontagon, a telegraphy specialist, communications platoon, headquarters, company reporting, sir. Splendid, Pumper Nicole. A plum picture. Nicole, splendid. I'm Anthony King, and with me from the left coast is... Hi, I'm Kristen Lipska. It's all about author, critic, and historian Danny Perry and his cult movies books around these parts. It's going to happen as we'll discuss a movie from the first book and then offer up some pairing recommendations. And joining Kristen and I to wrap up season three. That's right. Just 20 minutes ago, I decided this is going to be it. This is the season finale. To help us wrap things up on cult movies for the season is Mr. Christopher Funderburg from The Pink Smoke. How's it going? I'm going good. I'm excited to be the season finale. It's a lot to live up to. It's only appropriate that we're closing out the season with a post-apocalyptic movie. Although, is this movie... This is a strange movie. This movie isn't really post-apocalyptic in the way that... Well, Australia, I guess. Australia with, like, garbage bags that the production designer put in every shot. It's not actually, you don't get the sense that an apocalypse has actually happened in this movie. Well, Chris, since we're here, let's get right into it. Go ahead and introduce what we're talking about this week. We are talking about George Miller and Byron Kennedy's Mad Max from 1979. Uh, What else do I need to say about it? Danny Perry thinks it's a book about, a movie about cars and nothing else. (laughs) Well, what I think is really cool about this particular essay in the book is that Mad Max was released in America uh, as he was putting this thing together, yeah. right? So it reads like a proper review, the the only one in the book, really. And, and a nicely puzzled, like, review of the distribution strategy that was unfolding, where he's like, why is AIP burying this movie? And I think that's one of the interesting things to, that we can get into and talk about this movie is why this movie and George Miller are like disowned by like cult cinema insider types. And especially it's one of the funny things, you know, well, it'll be sort of impossible to avoid talking about not quite Hollywood, the Australian exploitation documentary. Although I hate when people put exploitation suffixes onto anything the you know exploitation um is that like this movie that documentary is like yeah fuck mad max it doesn't matter we're not even going to talk about it right and there's a lot of people in the australian exploitation film industry that have that same they treat this movie like it's picnic at hanging rock you know what i mean they treat this movie like it's my brilliant career which is from the same year or something like that where it does sort of get shoved uh, out of the scene. And the same thing happens with AIP, where it's sort of 
for whatever reason, Roger Corman is like, this isn't going to be a hit, even though, even as it's being a massive hit worldwide, even after it's shown to be a hit. And I, and I wonder what the reasons for that are. I mean, it being in competition at, at Cannes at the film festival is somehow a black mark against it. You know, it's easy to read all of this as like simple jealousy. You know what I mean? Uh, but it is a funny thing that the space this movie occupies and George Miller, uh, like Peter Weir, who's another guy that sort of Australian, the hardcore Australian people are like, no, he's not one of us anymore. They're the two that go on to Hollywood and get to be Hollywood big shots. Now, Kristen, was this your first time seeing Mad Max? No, it wasn't. I had seen it before. Yeah, but only once before. <laughs> okay, so before we get any further, let me read the opening paragraph of Danny's essay. He says, While America's art house crowds have been paying top dollar to see Australia's My Brilliant Career, another film from Down Under has been causing equal excitement in America's grindhouses at bargain prices, Mad Max. George Miller's first film was a hit at Cannes in 1978, and since then has been a big moneymaker in countries outside of Australia, with the major exceptions of the U.S. and France, where it was banned. It's true that it is done well wherever it is played here due to good word of mouth, but it is equally true that its U.S. distributor, American International, which took the trouble of dubbing the dialogue with American voices, hasn't considered getting the picture first-class bookings a top priority. For instance, it wasn't until late 1980 that it played in the major New York City market, and then it was on the lower half of a twin bill on 42nd Street. A month later, it was already showing on pay TV, indicating that AIP had no plans for giving it a theatrical release of consequence. Uh, so I remember seeing this, um, or at least parts of it, at uh, a babysitter's house. Barb, actually, who I talked about on the last week, last week's episode with Mike White. Uh, but I remember seeing uh, at least the the ending when Toe Cutter bites it. Uh, but I haven't really seen it in its entirety, I guess, until a couple years ago. So I'm really fascinated about this American dubbing thing. Have either of you seen the AIP release with the American voiceovers? Yes. Uh, I, I, somebody had a copy of it. I sought it out. It was the more common version when I was younger. It was like the VHS version had it. And I saw this movie... I saw this one and none of the others until I didn't see Road Warrior and Beyond Thunderdome until much later. I actually didn't see um, Road Warrior until when I was still working as a film programmer. I programmed the post-apocalyptic series and I saw Road, Runner and Road Warrior in that series. We got an uncut 35 millimeter print. It had never been shown before from Warner Brothers. So the first time it ran through a projector on the tech, I got to, I got to see it. Uh, and that's the first time I saw it. I can't remember what the hell else was that else was in that series. The only other film I can remember is Time of the Wolf, Michael Haneke's Time of the Wolf. We showed oh, in Bed Sitting Room, the um, the Richard Lester comedy. That's fucking phenomenal. But that was the first time I saw Road War. But I had seen Mad Max because when I'd been like a teenager, I was like, I'm going to watch these in order because that's the way to watch them. And I'd seen like the pan and scan dubbed. VHS and not been into it at all had just been like, I don't get it, you know? So I never watched any of the other stuff after that, but yeah, in the dubbing, you know, that I can understand the impulse definitely now that I've seen Mad Max more, I can understand what they're saying. But the first time you watch it, 
it's like, what what the fuck are they saying 90% of the time? And there's stuff like uh, that even just today doing research, there's a, there's a line. And I was like, what the hell does this line mean when he goes to... Um, the the junkyard where the guy has the sign that says uh, speed is a matter of money you know how fast do you want to go when that guy walks up he says ah that's up with the donkey right and I'm like what the fuck does this mean I looked it up donkey was just slang for engine in Australia at the time and there's lots of stuff like that in the movie that's just like I I can't understand what they're saying so I understand the impulse uh, to dub it and it's you know it's it's bad. It goes, everybody in the English dub talks like their Knight Rider, you know? Everybody doing the dubs, there's no modulation, goes at full volume. You need heroes, Max! You know, uh, like that, rather than the way that that Roger Ward actually, the SVP does the line, which is sort of lilting and not, you get the sense that maybe he doesn't believe in that line, you know? Uh, Kristen, do you remember the first time you saw Mad Max? Uh, I probably first saw it a few years ago, and I had maybe seen Road Warrior before that. And so I do remember when I first watched Mad Max, it was like more experimental than I expected it to be because it's nothing like the the sequels, which are like very 80s and like more indiana jones fun hero type thing and so i it was like unexpected when i first saw it like different chris uh do you have a favorite out of um out of the four mad max movies oh i mean fury road is clearly the best of them but road warrior is up there too i actually like mad max the least out of the four of them i'm i'm a very <laughs> the only problem with Thunderdome is that Road Warrior is so good. You know, that's really the only problem with, with Thunderdome is that, and the two movies that come before it, where it opens with that Tina Turner, like cheese ball 80s song, and it's PG-13, and it's got the gaggle of kids that want to go to Tomorrow Morrowland and that, you know, kind of stuff. Captain Phillips. Um, is that is that the character's name? Mrs. I can't remember the character's name now because we're not talking about Beyond Thunderdome. But uh, yeah, but Mad Max is um, it's not my favorite. I liked I watched it three times this week uh, in preparation for doing this. And it's really yeah, I would say now it's grown on me an incredible amount. You know, I would think there's a few things about it. I think that it's its script is a problem. We can talk about the screenwriter uh, in a little bit because he's sort of an interesting character. Um, but it's also not as fully its own thing as Road Warrior and Thunderdome and Fury Road, which are definitely sui generis, you know? And it's, and it's funny because in um, Perry's review, he says, there's nothing else like this movie. You know, it could be its only its own genre that other people could explore in action cinema. And uh, the stunt film, which is like a ludicrous idea to begin with that, like stunt based movies, you know, like uh, Mark Lister's stunts is before this, you know. Um, but it comes out of the biker genre very, very much, you know. Uh, and it belongs to the to the biker genre that's around. 1979 is late to make a biker picture. 
you know, its its heyday is the 60s and it sort of crests with Easy Rider, which then has just legions of imitators coming after it. And in fact, one of the movies that's, um, that gets called an influence on Mad Max, but I, I don't necessarily think that it is it's an important movie for mad max is um stone from 1974 which is uh about uh, you know it's an even bigger influence on brian bosworth stone cold because it's about a cop going undercover in a biker gang to um suss out of like a murder plot and and you know break up this biker gang but stone is important to mad max because he imported uh, a bunch of the cast from it that Roger Ward that I mentioned who plays Fifi is in it and um Keys Burn is uh plays one of like the main henchmen in it he's the guy who plays Toe Cutter in Mad Max who's phenomenal and um and the guy who plays uh um the station master also Reg the guy who sort of when they go to get the coffin is also in stone so there's a few people and very key people that were imported from um from stone in that way uh but i don't think stone stylistically is a huge influence in that way uh i think that all those sort of biker movies where a bunch of like bikers show up and like rough house you know and then and sort of get into fights and then something happens biker pictures have a tendency to have no plot really like they're they're very like um, sort of plot deficient films. They're very, and the times they do have plots like Nam's Angels or something, it's fucking ludicrous. You know, a lot of them just have completely ridiculous plots. And I think that they absorb an amount of that into Mad Max, the second half of this movie, because the first half of the movie is Goose's movie. It's not Mad Max's movie. And there's a stretch of about a half an hour where Mel Gibson isn't even on screen. And then when it becomes Mad Max's movie, he doesn't want to be a cop anymore. So it gets very, the last half hour building up to the last 10 minutes is a real slog. It's it's a really hard thing to sit through in, in that way. But um, it definitely comes out of, the biker picture, you know, it's, it's a huge subgenre and they're really late to it. There's something that's, that's almost stale about doing a biker picture at this point. And really George Miller's talents as a director uh, and sort of ideas as a director are what's interesting about this movie. I think that's one thing that Danny Perry gets right is that the uh, artistry or, you know, the artisan qualities behind it, the use of camera and stunts and shot and editing and montage are what's fantastic about this movie. You know, that that's really what's fantastic about this movie more than it's just this completely, there's nothing else like it kind of film. I would say Road Warrior is the most influential film of all time. I would, I would say that in terms of how it's influenced media and post-apocalyptic media and our idea of what post-apocalyptic is, across movies and novels and video games it's just road warrior so often it's just a road warrior world when people say post-apocalyptic what they mean is road warrior you know mad max is not that mad max is a biker picture that happens to be extremely weird extremely weird movie and i think that's what makes it a true cult movie is that with a cult film, it's something you have to like in spite of its flaws, and its flaws are going to be off-putting to a larger audience in a lot of ways. And I'd say that's what Mad Max is. Everything from the impenetrable dialogue to the weird little things that 
sometimes break it for people like a baby randomly nailed to a door or Fifi's spider tattoo with the little web thing going across his head or any of any of that stuff or just how brutally violent the violent sequences are, you know, um, I think is off putting to a lot of people. And I think that there's uh, it's real cult cinema stuff. OK, so, Kristen, are you a fan of the movie? Yes, I feel like I have liked it more every time I've watched it. I've watched it three times now. Um, I really appreciate the, like you said, the editing is amazing and the there's like very inventive shots, like the cameras attached to the cars and things. And the, I don't know, I see, I it's just so like pared down story-wise and character-wise so that it's like, like it like it really focuses like you said on the talents of George Miller like what he has brought to it as a director and it looks I, I watched this Shout Factory Blu-ray it looks fucking great <laughs> now while I'm not a fan of Thunderdome and uh, I get it I realize Fury Road is the superior film I gotta say uh, I think I like the original the most and I think it's just because of how crazy and like dangerous it looks. Well, that's, you know, that something that gets said a lot is, oh, you couldn't make that movie today. I watch Mad Max and think you really couldn't make this movie today. I don't think stuntmen would agree to do any of this. I don't think actors would agree to do any of this. I, I really don't think that famous shot where the guy jumps off his bike and then the other biker's bike comes forward and hits him in the back of the helmet and you're like, oh my God, how is he not dead? There's so many shots like that. They didn't use stump doubles. Even when like Goose is beating down Johnny the Boy in the courtyard, that's just him throwing Johnny the Boy down and doing a stage punch. Uh, you know, it's them all tumbling around. Oh, one thing before I forget, because it popped in my head, it's going to drive me crazy. Another person imported from Stone is Vince Gill as the Knight Rider. So like the big major figures in this movie of the villains were all imported from stone. But this is, this is just like a movie that I really don't think you could get, you know, like let's get some hell's angels and vigilantes, pay them a pallet of beer and have them drive their bikes off a bridge. Like, I just don't think, I don't think you could do it anymore. I don't think anybody would agree to do it. And I think if you tried, you would be, um, rightfully vilified for endangering everybody's lives in a really serious way. You know, at the beginning car chase, when um, they uh, uh, they hit the microbus, the blue microbus, and it spins around, there's a fucking driver in there, and it gets it gets obliterated, and you can see him grabbing and holding on as it's spinning around, it doesn't even look like he's wearing a seatbelt. It's insane. He certainly doesn't have a shoulder strap on and you just, you couldn't do this ever again. This is a document is of, of a time that just couldn't happen again. And I think in some ways it has to be the, the climax of the biker genre. You know, all of those biker movies feature like a guy on their bike, like sliding to the ground and like a car doing a little jump where this movie is like, okay, let's take all of the cliches of the biker genre and push them further, push them as far as we can push them. And I do think they pushed it as far as they can push them. I don't think you can go any further with a low budget action movie than this movie goes. I think it really reached a limit and I think nobody will ever get to try again unless it's like 
some kind, you know, unless like the Nigerian film industry, just some place that's unregulated and has different social mores and is interested in making action films, decides to 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 push things in this way. So, do you think that's like an Austral uh, an Australian thing? Uh, what that they push it so far? No, because you have similar stuff happening in the United States. I mean, the United States had much more stuntman culture in the 70s. I mean, what year is Hooper? You know what I mean? Like the myth, the myth of the American stuntman is well established by the time of this movie end. And the idea that stuntmen are going to try and do a higher drop and a, a bigger burn. I mean, that's one of the things that you see in the marketing materials for Stone is that like, the stunt coordinator did an 80 foot drop on his bike, rode it off a cliff into the ocean. And that sort of measurables of stuff, um, I think is well established. I think in America, the idea is that stuntmen are sort of like cowboys, but there's an infrastructure around them that's going to make sure so that they don't die. Uh, you know, is it is it Australian? I don't know, because you have something like Deadbeat by Dawn as well, which is also... Um, trying to push the action as far as it will go with no money. I think it's more a function of, of the low budget than any sort of national character. Cause like you look at Brian Trenchard Smith's movies and they don't push anything whatsoever. He's a very color within the lines kind of filmmaker, except for his awful sense of humor. You know, everything else is like very much within the lines. He's a he's a paint by numbers and he, I don't think would ever, it would never occur to him to do something like this. I think it's I think it's George Millity, George, I think it's George Miller and Byron Kennedy that are responsible for this. I think both of them had the ideas and the artistry and the talent to push it this far. I think they're smarter and they're better than than a lot of their contemporaries and peers. I think that that's just what the case is. Kristen, are you well versed or a fan of uh pardon my French, Ozploitation <laughs> movies? Uh I'm fan i don't know how well versed i am but <laughs> i like a i like a brian trenchard smith <laughs> his movies are terrible <laughs> man from hong kong is great yeah uh, that's the only one i like i just watched that one here's the here's the thing he's in that documentary tarantino says i tell everybody my favorite australian director is brian trenchard smith right and so now you have all of these like young film people who just sort of like ape that mindset without having to sit through these goddamn movies, you know, he's, he's, he's a bad director anyway. And he's condescending. He's very condescending to the material, which is something that I can't get over is he loves putting smirk quotes on everything, something like Turkey shoot uh, or, or leprechaun in space. There's, there's smirk quotes all over everything. The I'm too good for this shit is all over his work. Anyway. You know, I really dig, not quite Hollywood because I'm the type of person who loves to watch those types of documentaries while furiously scribbling down notes and, yeah. and uh, of the titles to seek out. But I got to say uh, the Australian movies and primarily the exploitation ones that I've seen because of not quite Hollywood yeah. haven't been the best. That, that movie recommends a bunch of bad movies. That's the thing. That's what I'm saying is it has an allergy to Mad Max that describes its mindset. It doesn't tell you to watch Peter Weir's The Plumber, The Cars That Ate Paris or Flirting or My Brilliant Career or the amazing, amazing movies coming out of 
Australia. It very much has crate diggers syndrome of like, here's the weirdest, most obscure shit that came out at that time. And it really doesn't want to tell you to watch the actual good movies, you know, for, you know, it's not my kind of movie, but Picnic at Hanging Rock is better than Pin or Dead in Drive-In or uh, the the last weekend. Uh, although I think that guy is uh, is an interesting director. His name escapes me at the moment. Mister Psycho Two, the Hitchcock ripoff artist. Uh, Franklin. Yes, uh, Richard, Richard Franklin. Franklin. Yeah, he's a, he's an interesting director. But like Peter Weir and George Miller really are better. They just really are better. And and Gillian Armstrong is also great from the same era. She's also better than them. And she doesn't even exist to that movie because it's not because she's not making exploitation films, obviously. Well, like I said before, I think the reason I love Mad Max so much is that it looks so dangerous. Uh, Chris, uh, I hope I'm saying this right. Ceballos um, tweeted this picture of George Miller filming Mad Max where he's sitting on the back of a crotch rocket with, you know, the giant ass camera just propped up on his shoulder and he's shooting one of the chases um, or, or like when the dude takes the motorcycle to the head, that looks terrifying. Yeah. He has to be paralyzed. There's just no way. It's just fucking cool to think about how, mo- how this movie was made. Yeah. The, uh, the, uh, DP and a lot of them, like the shot where the hand is out, the shotgun is out the car window at the beginning when he's going to try and cut off Knight Rider. That's the DP's hand holding the shotgun and filming and leaning out a real car window at the same time. And there's a lot of stuff like that where you have like a shot inside the car and it's just director hand or just the director of photography handheld, not the director, the director of photography has the hand out the window handheld where a lot of those, a lot of those turns and a lot of those pulls, it really is just like them in there doing it with no precautions, no harnesses, just hoping it all works out okay, you know? Now, like I said on uh, episode, well, the episode I did with Jonathan Hersberg on Tulane Blacktop, I'm not a car guy. I don't know shit about cars. Yeah, me neither. And I realize Mad Max is more than a car and motorcycle picture, but I have to agree with Danny that these cars are really fucking cool. Yeah. Uh, what What's the name of um, of Max's car? There's the pursuit special is the black one. And then the interceptor is the one he's in at the beginning. Right. So like when he and goose go to the garage to see the souped up black one and he starts the engine, it just sounds so sexy for sure. I'm not a car person. It's also interesting though. It is, you know, like any movie that's, um, that's based on car stuff. You know, this movie gets really picked apart by like motor, enthusiast where like you know like stuff like the motorcycles are constantly turning on when they hit the gear you know what i mean instead of the starter like they'll grab something and go when it's he's you know grabbing the gear putting his foot on the gear and uh and stuff also like pointed out like the flame hot rod that the couple gets is in that gets smashed to pieces that's like a converted ford fairlane but there's just stuff glued on it like the pipes coming out of the front are glued glued very flimsily and there's actually a shot of them getting knocked off and you see they don't go down inside to the engine to release anything they're just glued on top of it and there's a lot of things you know and the in the pursuit special that engine that sticks out of the front of it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't do anything, you know? 
Uh, it's not anything. It looks that cool. It looks awesome. That's the thing is the movie looks That's, awesome. I think this yeah. movie is like better for people like me who don't know anything about cars who are just like, all of this looks fucking fantastic. That little tricycle with the sidecar that the woman's sitting in with like the bubble on it and stuff like that. There's just so much stuff that's cool to look at in this movie. And then jo- George Miller really goes for it in Fury Road. I, I'm sure we've all seen those, um, like the behind the scenes documentaries about the cars in Fury Road, but I just love the creativity and the design. Well, we'll talk, we can talk about that later. I was actually going to be my, my pairing recommendation for it, but the movie that I think is the real influence on this movie, that's the real big influence is not Stone, but is um, Peter Weir's The Cars That Ate Paris. And just because, but there's the cars from Cars That Ate Paris are in Fury Road. He pays homage to it. He has the the Volkswagen Beetles with the spikes are taken from Cars That Ate Paris. He gives a nod to this movie that's clearly a big influence to him. Anyway. Now, I got to say, and I'm maybe I'm alone in this. I don't know. Uh, the movie really drags in the middle for me. Like after he quits and then we get that uh, montage of the road trip and like the romantic shit. Uh, the movie just seriously grinds to a halt for me. I- am I am I wrong here? Well, it's a movie that's a real testament to if you're opening 12 and a half minutes, which is the sequence, the chase sequence, and your last 12 and a half minutes are awesome, it sort of doesn't matter what's in between. Just if you open awesome and end awesome, people come in and they watch it at the beginning. They're like, this is awesome. And then they go out on, this is awesome. You know, and I think that you can get I think you can sort of basically have anything in there in between it. And I get like, we're trying to know these characters. uh, So when she gets killed, it hits us, the audience harder. But uh, Kristen, I have to ask you, what are your thoughts on her serenading him with that tenor sax? (laughs) That's one of those scenes. That's like a diegetic, non-diegetic joke, because I totally (laughs) thought it was just like the movie's music and then it shows her playing the saxophone. I was like, Oh, okay. I guess in the movie. But other than that, like all the romance stuff in the middle is a real energy sucker. It's, it's dead weight. It's it's real dead weight. We can talk about the, um, just with Jesse real quick. Uh, what, you know, there's the famous, uh, Tom Hardy and Fury Road is actually the feral kid from Road Warrior fan theory, right? Like, that's why he's not acting like Max. John Cribbs has a very detailed Jesse is Furiosa fan theory about that because she loses her arm in bed, too. You can see that her arm is cut off in a stump and she has her head shaved a little bit in bed, too, on that. So John Cribbs, if you want to talk to him about Jesse being (laughs) Furiosa... I just hope in the Furio, it'll be confirmed if in the Furiosa movie that's being made now, she plays the tenor sax. Then we'll know for sure. Um, no, the the script of this movie is a bit of a mess. And the screenwriter is James McCausland. It's the only script he ever wrote, right? He never wrote anything else. And how he came to write the script is that uh, George Miller and Byron Kennedy, who's the producer of it. And I think Byron Kennedy is almost as important to the Mad Max movies as George Miller, except that, you know, Obviously, Fury Road is made without him. Um, uh, They had like a one-page treatment that they went to James McCausland with and were like, will you write the screenplay? How they had found McCausland was George Miller got it in his head that newspapermen make the best screenwriters because of Mankiewicz and Hecht, right? Had been newspapermen. He had read um, Pauline Kael's essay 
on the writing of Citizen Kane. And he got it into his head that newspaper men are the best screenwriters. So he had known McCausland, uh, who has a cameo in the film. He's the bearded guy who comes out of Fat Nancy's in the opening sequence and sort of stands in the in the parking lot and looks at what's going on uh, as Goose is pulling away from Fat Nancy's. Um, that he would, he was the cinephile that George Miller had met at a party and they had like bonded talking about movies. George Miller, it hasn't, should be mentioned, was a real doctor before he made this movie. It was a real serious doctor. Actually, the movie was funded in part by him taking on extra shifts uh, and specifically emergency shifts and whatnot to raise money for it. And he had met um, this guy McCausland at a party and said, hey, you should write this movie for me. And basically all McCausland did to learn about screenwriting was like, go watch movies with George Miller and like bullshit about them, right? And about, you know, how movies are made and stuff like that. And I think that he doesn't know how to write a script. I think at the end of the day is that he's not been hacked. You know, like this is just a fact of the matter about him and that he never writes anything else. He never writes another movie and goes back to being he's like the finance guy for an Australian newspaper. And I believe he's like specifically like Murdoch papers. I think he's like a, a right wing finance guy, but I don't know that much about him. Um, I didn't read any of his finance reporting for this. I guess I, I guess I should have. He was like a, he was like a big figure in the like this is something that's so forgotten in like the 2005 to 2008, all of like the peak oil talk that was really like big deal. He was somebody who would get trotted out to talk about peak oil. And then he would talk about, yeah, about Mad Max as being like prescient about peak oil and how I think because of the connections between it. Um, but he, you know, he just doesn't, he just doesn't really know what he's doing. And I think that, after Goose gets sidelined, because Goose is really magnetic in this movie, that the it's he's really a much more interesting performance and character, um, Steve Bisley, than Mel Gibson. And Mel Gibson's a, one of the other interesting things about this movie. He's a bona fide movie star, and he was just discovered by George Miller. And uh, actually, according to to legend. Uh, um, Mel Gibson, his good friend Judy Davis came to the audition with him for this. They knew each other at college. They went to the same acting school, which is fucking crazy because my brilliant career is 79 also with Judy Davis, obviously, and Mad Max is 79 that like these two like just amazing talents we're like friends who got into film at the same time. It's just crazy. But Mad Max is a really great movie star. Goose, though, is like this whole movie and Mel Gibson never really takes it over i don't feel like especially he's really boring in this movie yeah and i've never like you think you said he we fall in love with the characters anthony i didn't never not fall in love with max in this movie he's not given anything to do and that introduction where they build him up by filming like his boots and his gloves and the back of his head he just he's not they he's sort of a pretty cipher in this movie mm. and the end young Mel Gibson is extremely gorgeous man but he is like he's a bit of a cipher and um he does have the one good scene where he's talking about his dad um and how his dad used to shine get his shoes so shiny and how proud he was of his dad and how much pride he felt to just be walking along beside him and that's really thematically important for this movie and Fury Road which are all about um wanting the approval of a dad god 
that you've built in your life of a Mortan Joe or Toe Cutter. You know, you see me, Toe Cutter, the Toe Cutter knows who I am, is what Knight Rider's screaming. Because they really want, you know, it's that's comparable to the witness me, you know, that they want a Mortan Joe and Fury Road to see them and approve of them. And I think that it's very intentionally something on George Miller's mind with this little monologue where Mad Max, it's the flip side of the coin is not just that he's a criminal and he's becoming like them out there. He's becoming a terminal psychotic, you know, but you know, it's not just that he's the flip side of the coin in that way. He's the flip side of the coin in that he just wants approval of sort of like the dad God figure in your life of that, of that looming figure. And that Fifi isn't that for him at all. And I think that giving Fifi that name, even though he's played great by Roger Ward, who's a former wrestler and all that, that uh, very imposing presence, uh, even just calling him Fifi, I think is designed to undercut it. Although I also wonder if it's a reference to Val Luton's Mademoiselle Fifi. That's about an uh, a, a, an officer uh, whose nickname is Mademoiselle Fifi, sort of derisively. He's a very authoritarian officer in the army. Um, but I but I agree. Like when it switches to Mel Gibson, there's nothing interesting in it except for that like space vista on the side panel of the of the station wagon there's this it really just completely loses steam completely completely and i think a lot of movies run into that problem with like the reluctant hero of he's so reluctant he's out and then they don't know what to do with him for 25 minutes you know it's they're gonna get pulled back in it just it has no narrative urgency and mccausland isn't a good enough screenwriter to pull it back and mel gibson doesn't doesn't have anything to do. I think Mel Gibson's a really phenomenal movie star. He's obviously a terrible piece of shit, garbage human being, who, you know, just deserves the worst. But as a movie star, he's a movie star that I really, really love watching on screen. And, but he doesn't know, but he doesn't have anything to do and he doesn't come up with anything interesting. I feel like they, he's not being himself except in like two or three moments, like when he laughingly says, when he's shown the pursuit session and he's like laughs the line, when do we take it for a ride? You can see sort of like Mel Gibson's lethal weapon, lunatic charmer thing, which is what Mel Gibson's star persona generally is, is the lunatic charmer, you know? Okay. So I got to ask here in that middle section of the movie, Max and Jesse and the kid end up at that old lady's house, right? Uh, with the big handicapped dude. Uh, did I miss where they explain who that is? No, they just seem to be family friends. Uh, they, I, I think it's some relation to Jesse. Jesse seems to know the old woman in a way that Max doesn't like they're sort of friendly with each other in some way, but I don't, I don't know what the, uh, the situation is. Although that, that grandmother type lady is a great example. She's got those leg braces on of one of the things I love about this movie is, is that Miller dresses people up in weird shit every chance he can get. Like the police commissioner who's in the kendo outfit with like the breastplate and has the helmet or the guy the you know, uh, the, the beekeeper uh, hat he's wearing when he first comes, when they, when the bad guys first come to the station to pick up Knight Rider's remains in the t hilarious child-sized tiny coffin. He's wearing the beekeeper hat or, you know, um, how the guy who gets his throat cut then is talking with the throat amplifier the rest of the movie. Like he loves to find interesting bits of, of clothing to put people in. And one thing I never noticed before until watching it recently on Blu-ray is that um, Toe Cutter has a shaved eyebrow. He shaved off his right eyebrow 
for it, uh, which you can, uh, it's still very dark right there, but there's one or two shots where you can see, oh, he shaved his eyebrow off. And that's one of the things I, I love about this movie is the, all of those strange details, strange, inexplicable details. The highlight for the movie, for me, though, are the bad guys. It's like Toe Cutter is uh, running this this cult, like training serial killers, right? Um, and it completely scares the shit out of me. But those performances that the biker gang, and particularly Hugh Keys Byrne, completely blow me away. He was a trained Shakespearean actor. He was part of the Royal Shakespeare Company in England. He's actually an English actor, not an Australian actor. And he's he has incredible gravity. I believe that the guy who played Bubba as well is also a trained Shakespearean actor. But don't don't quote me on that one. I really like how the gang is very strange and theatrical. Yeah. <laughs> for for no apparent reason other than it's like a little bit more upsetting. Um, like at one point, one of them is like being a cat on a roof and meowing when they're like harassing. Or they're uh, like dancing with each other in the yeah. street or like doing those exercises on the beach in the background of one scene where they're sort of like trying to do handstands when there's another scene going on. There's so much great stuff. The guy's just hanging off the building at one point. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. And I really like when Toe Cutter like grabs that guy's face in the coffin scene. It's like, God. Um, it's uh, talking about the casting of the physically interesting people with George Miller, too. Um, you see that in the later films in beyond Thunderdome uh, with master blaster or with Quentin, uh, Quentin Kinahan in fury road that he casts people with actual uh, disabilities and very striking physicalities. I don't know if disability is the right word anymore. Dif physical differences. I don't want to offend anybody. Um, and, but in, um, in Mad Max, he wanted to, for the guy they give, you know, Kundalini gets his hand ripped off and it's hanging down the back of the chain and they go to a police officer and give it to him in a plastic bag. That guy they give the hand to was supposed to be played by an actor who was missing his face from being burned off somehow. He had like no face and everybody was like, you can't do this. This is too upsetting to look at for just this random character. But you can see he's very interested in putting people with very striking physical differences on screen and giving them actual roles and giving them actual things to do that aren't just disabled guy, you know, that they're actual roles that call on them to do something other than just be somebody who's disabled in some way. And I think that that's really fascinating. And I wonder how much of that comes from his background as a doctor to sort of have that approach to like, there's a lot of people in this world who are, have health problems or health differences who are just different than quote unquote normal, but they're out there as normal people leading normal lives and you will encounter them with some regularity if you're a doctor. Yes. George Miller, he who directed Babe, Pig in the City and the two Happy Feet movies. Lorenzo's Oil. He, however, did not direct uh, Never Ending Story Part Two and uh, The Man from Snowy River. Is that what the, yeah, that is not him. Nor is the Brian May who did the score from this movie from Queens. Very, a lot of double names what, in these. That's not Brian May from Queen? No, from Queen, not Queens. Nope, different guy. 
one of the uh, things that I think is great about the movie is he does give it a very traditional, uh, like golden age Hollywood score, you know, orchestral score that unlike a lot of biker pictures that wanted to have hip music on them, uh, sort of an imitation of Easy Rider, that this movie, I think it stands out again, that it has no pop music on it in that way, that it has no feel of the open road, Rolling Stones knockoff type music, you know. Oh, something I wanted to point out real quick. Um, so after Jesse runs into the gang at the ice cream joint and then Toe Cutter helps her put the baby in the back of the van and then she like peels out of there and like she's fishtailing like a mad woman. And uh, we have to assume having not seen her strap the kid in, that baby's just like rolling around all willy nilly back there, right? <laughs> it was a it, different time. Even it's got the ice baby cream had to, to do stunts. <laughs> The baby does do a stunt in that in the scene after the saxophone scene, the baby's holding a gun and playing with a gun. And everything is real on this movie. There are no props of any kind. There's no fake axes, no fake guns, no fake anything because they didn't have the budget for any of the fake stuff. So like anytime you see like a crowbar being jammed through a window or a cleaver smashing something or somebody holding a gun, it's real guns. It's real actual guns real actual weapons, no prop stuff. Well, like you said, this is a movie you couldn't make today. You couldn't, you couldn't, you couldn't, you couldn't uh, do it anymore. You couldn't fake it. And it is all, this is a movie that really is, they really stretch the budget. The production designer famously has a story talking about when that scene you're talking about at the milk bar, right? Which is just what they call ice cream shops in Australia, which I think is weird until I knew that I always thought, I guess this is a clockwork orange reference in some way, you know, like the violence of it. No, but similar sort of near future violent gang type of stuff, but it's just, they just call them milk bars. He went and stole the signage from the milk bar in his local town. Like everything that's on the front of the building, he went at 5 a.m. and pulled it all off and put it up. They shot it for the day. Then he took it back in the middle of the night and reset it. So he was like, you know, famously, like they didn't have any budget for it. He's like, I'm sorry, we needed your signs, you know, uh, for that kind of stuff. But there is throughout the movie, like everything you see is sort of, borrowed and 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 jury rigged in some way in some very simple way that they could get it you know abandoned buildings abandoned spaces one one more great jury rigging thing that they did is they you know for when toe cutter gets run over by the semi at the end right they went to a guy and he's like come to our shoot we're going to use you for the this stunt and then when they explained a guy on set like what it is he's like i can't do that you're going to destroy the front of my semi, like I can't take my semi and run over this guy. So what they did is they took a big sheet of metal and painted it to look like the grill with the lights and everything on it. And it's like on there, like like a cow catcher, like a bulldozer front, like three feet out from the semi. And if you pause it and look really closely, it's, it's kind of a cheesy drawing of it too, that toe cutter gets hit by. So it doesn't actually hit the semi. Okay, Kristen, so final thoughts on Mad Max? Uh, I just wanted to say I was glad Danny Perry brought up the horror element. Like the second half is kind of like a horror movie because when I was watching it this time, there's the scene where uh, Max is like seeing Goose in the hospital and he's all burned up and his hand falls out. It, but then it, that's not Goose. No way. <laughs> yeah. But that, that moment is like it's suddenly like giallo lighting. It's like red and blue. 
and his eyes are like a little bit brighter. And then there's what there's like an edit where it's like a watery <laughs> effect yeah. that's very like strange for the rest of the movie. Like that's the only he said when he like sits that. up in bed, yeah, that's when the, there's the streak of light across his eyes. The DP had just cut a shoebox with a little strip of light to film nice. it. That's like the kind of equipment. <laughs> and underneath, and when he's seeing Goose in the bed, the lighting is incredible. They put just a single light underneath the sheet to give it that like interior lit sort of feeling underneath the sheet on it. But I agree. And that ties into my, to my, one of my pairings as well with it. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt, but no, that's all. I just thought that was interesting, also because like it, you're suddenly supposed to be like that shot and that effect is like s supposed to make you connect with Max more, and then th that that's the only moment really where that happens. Like he's not really charismatic or anything <laughs> in a way that makes me want to connect with him that moment the uh that's not goose no way that really reminds me of have ever you guys seen uh imamura's black rain the movie about about hiroshima and like the aftermath of hiroshima the uh there's a scene where the guy finds like a teenager finds his younger brother on the street who's like melted from getting hit by the nuclear bomb and it's like you're not my brother. That's not my brother. You're not my brother. And Canton's brother's like, no, it's me. It's me. Very, very harrowing scene. But that always reminds me of that in, in this movie uh, for it. Because this movie really does remind me of, of art films more than it, like the influence of stuff like Stone is undeniable. But the things that get brought to mind when I'm watching it are from a very different constellation of artworks. Yeah. Chris, any final thoughts on Mad Max? Just to, I wanted to talk a little bit about Byron Kennedy, who I think is a really important part of it, who's, um was the producer on the film. He had met George Miller when he was super young. He made this movie when he was in his early 20s. I think he might have been 21 when he made this film, but he's super young on this movie. And Miller Kennedy was their production company together. Maybe he was 25. Um, and they worked together and they were super close. And by all accounts, um, Byron Kennedy had as much to do with this movie getting made and being the movie it is as George Miller did. And part of the reason that Beyond Thunderdome is strange, it's co-credited, it has a co-director credit on it, is that Byron Kennedy, who was like a, a um, he was like the guy who actually like hung out with bikers and loved the muscle cars and stuff like that. Although he was a very straight and narrow kid at the same time, he's much more of an adventure seeker. He died while piloting and helicopter scouting locations for beyond Thunderdome, right? So, so he died getting Thunderdome together. They were in a very remote part of Australia and he had, he had passed away while doing that uh, scouting location. And that's why George Miller sort of quit beyond Thunderdome. Cause this was this guy who was like one of his best friends in the world and then his artistic collaborator died and he kind of couldn't go through with it. So they hired a, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but George Alvigby to uh, come in and be the co-director on it. But I think that you do um, you do just have to give Byron Kennedy a lot of credit here alongside George Miller for everything and just sort of the, the uh, emotional devastation that happens to Miller on Thunderdome where he can't get out of it. It's like a studio film. The movie's got to get made still. He can't just say, I'm too devastated not to make this movie. So they gave him a co-director on it. But um, 
he's a it's he was a real real talent and super young and super go-getter and it's and it's uh sort of strange you you wonder if what kind of career he would have been able to have because he ended up doing mainly australian television even after road warrior and mad max he made a lot of many series uh but it just feels like at some point he would have been a major figure you know like a like a Kathleen Kennedy type figure. I know they have the same last name. Maybe that's why I thought of that. But just like one of those major Hollywood producer types. How old were those guys when they made this? I don't know how old Miller was because he was a doctor. I, I'm not good at tracking his age, and he was he was pretty established. But Byron Kennedy was was super young. Let's we can I, we can look that up in two seconds and find out the answer. So he was born in '49. So he's 30 when this movie gets made. So he's 25 when he meets George Miller. Chris, I got to say, I love that for the show, you and I have talked about um, Lola Montez first, right? Yes. And then King of Hearts. Yeah. And now Mad Max. Very similar films. Very similar. I don't know. There is a connection between King of Hearts and Mad Max in some way. The town full of lunatics engaged in lovable mayhem. It's, it's lovable what the bad guys do in Mad Max, right? Did I just describe that correctly? Absolutely. These, these guys are super cuddly. They are magnetic and charismatic, though. That's the thing is they are really magnetic and they do overwhelm the film. It's kind of silly that it's called Mad Max in a lot of ways. OK, let's move on to the second half of our program here where Kristen, Chris and I will each recommend two more films you compare with George Miller's Mad Max. Um, so, Chris, let's start with you. Well, I already said it, so I'll just say it, which is The Cars That Ate Paris, the Peter Weir film that uh, he, George Miller pays homage to in Fury Road with the, the spiky beetles are taken from Cars That Ate Paris. Cars That Ate Paris, I think, is a big influence on Mad Max more than the sort of biker pictures because Cars That Ate Paris is, it sometimes gets described as a horror movie. It's not really that. Um, it's just a weird movie is the only way to describe Cars That Ate Paris. It's about this small town in Australia that's engineering car accidents so it can, it's, uh, as, a, as a way to uh, get money for the city, that they strip down the cars and then they sell the people to this doctor for medical experiments. Uh, and it's about weird, backwards, tiny Australian town politics and like, the ways in which social structures are built on top of ugliness and how um, the weird interaction between morality and immorality and social structure and lack of social structure, which is the main theme of Mad Max, obviously, is as society is degrading and dissolving and these social structures are dissolving, what does it look like, actually? I think that Mad Max is interesting in some ways because it's not a post-apocalyptic movie where things have broken down and new structures need to be built up. It's about the dissolution of those structures and them sort of dissolving right in front of our very eyes. And when cops don't want to be cops anymore and the criminals have no um boundaries you know there's something that that john cribs and i write about a lot which is that happened in the 60s in america which is something we call the new crime which is the idea not just that crime is getting worse which it was to an almost unfathomable degree in the 60s but that it was somehow different right that it was not just like youth biker gangs you know doing liquor store holdups are getting in fights with switchblades, but that it was like psychotics 
cult serial killers breaking into your house and killing you and your kids, you know, that something fundamentally different was happening in the 60s. And the crime explosion in the 60s really is incredibly huge. You you kind of can't understand how big it is between 1960 and even 1962 it starts. But like 62 to 69, it's almost inconceivable. And I think that's what Mad Max is trying to look at in a lot of ways is like, what is behind this total dissolution of social fabric that is resulting in crime? And it's obviously a very, very complicated issue to talk about all that. But there's also an undeniable thing that's happening of things are getting worse. Things are getting more terrible. Things are uh, happening in a way that that is almost inconceivable. And Cars That Ate Paris is about that in some ways, too, about how society is keeping those forces in check. It's not that those forces didn't exist before. It's that they were being kept in check and funneled into productive means in the past. This is the way society takes the desire to murder and torture and medical experimentation and lust and channels it into sort of productive structures. And then, you know, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Launders itself, launders these desires into socially acceptable things is what Cars That A Paris is about. And Mad Max is about sort of flip sides of those things has a relation to it ship to it that's not what mad max is about but it's definitely interesting to put them right next to each other and cars that ate paris is 75 i think maybe 74 it's right it's just before this and it's clearly um if you ask me what movies george miller's thinking of i would bet it's cars that ate paris and a clockwork orange or what he's thinking of with mad max like mad max it's almost a horror movie you know this uh, this was one of my picks, and I watched it for the first time because of this podcast. Uh, the performances are so unique and unforgettable. It's it's such it's just such a weird freaking movie. Um, it's not uh, it's not great, but it's definitely not boring, right? It's it's so weird. I agree with that. I don't think it's a, a I don't think it's a great movie either, but it is deeply strange and deeply original. And I think that that's probably also what Miller's thinking of with Mad Max is let me make my movie original in some way, in the way that Cars That Ate Paris is. Kristen, have you seen this? I haven't, but I'm here for anything described as weird repeatedly. (laughs) (laughs) It's not self-consciously weird. It's part of what's weird is how... um, regular it is it's almost that little town it's almost like the town from the music man or something it's very hard to describe this little town that um in some way it's not like gaspar noe like very self i'm about to blow your mind you know kind of oh you can't handle this countdown to get out of the theater it's not like that it's much it's much more like regular human being weird you know, if this movie was a serial killer, it'd be Joseph Callinger. There you go. Okay, that's the Cars That Ate Paris. Uh, Kristen, let's hear your first pairing recommendation with Mad Max. I am picking another movie that start like takes the biker gang, but then does something different with it, and that is Psychomania from 1973. Yeah. Um, this is it's like a biker film folk horror mashup. Um, it's about a biker gang who uh, learns 
how to come back from the dead. And then once they're resurrected, they're basically impervious so they can cause as much chaos as they uh, want. Um, this, this movie's just fun. I mean, it's like the tone is weird and the journey is weird. A lot of the movie is just them like figuring out how they're going to kill themselves <laughs> and everything. But it has, I love that like it's a British and it has this folk horror element. There's a, there's a lot of frog ambulance that are not explained. Um, it's the bikers are not scary in this movie. They're kind of the main characters, so you just kind of go along with it. Um, has, yeah, frog amulets, witches turned to stone, bikers being uh, buried in a grave, sitting on their bikes. Check it out. Psychomania. Oh my God. I love this movie. It's so freaking fun. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, that movie's a ton of fun. If you want, when you talk about like, I want like a good cheesy horror movie thing, you mean Psychomania. You yeah. really do mean something like that. I like how it's this, um, it's this like British film. So automatically it carries this sort of class, right? But then you mix in this fucking absurd plot about bikers killing themselves to be resurrected in order to live forever. There's also something about the way it's done. It reminds me of um, the way it's like shot and performed and acted. Reminds me of like the live action Disney movies from the same era, like Cat from Outer Space and stuff. It has like a similar tone to like that, that like Don Knotts type movies. Okay, so that is Psychomania. Uh, my first pairing recommendation has been mentioned in passing already on this episode, and that is Jim Van Beber's masterpiece, Deadbeat at Dawn, from 1988. Uh, I had talked about this movie with Bradley and Dan over at Movies from Hell and extolled my love for it. Um, I can't exactly tell you why, but I watch this thing at least a couple times a year, um, and it gets better every single time I watch it. So Jim Van Beber directed he wrote and he stars in it did probably everything else too um and he plays this guy called goose who's the leader of the ravens and he decides to quit that doesn't sit well with the members of his gang or the rival gang who are called the spiders and so to get him back uh they kill his girlfriend they kill goose's girlfriend they set him up during this heist and then he vows revenge um it's just fucking cool it's brutal as hell, but it's one of those movies. Um, listen, it's not great by any stretch of the imagination, but it's this dude, Jim Van Beber, who clearly loves action movies <laughs> and violence, and he just wants to show off his sweet moves, okay? Uh, <laughs> Chris, are you a fan of Deadbeat at Dawn? Yeah, it's it's hard not to be because it has a similar quality to Mad Max of just going for it. You know, it's, it's not uh, a great movie. It's probably also a biker picture. I, I think is sort of, it's like a gang picture. I guess there's no real motorcycles in it, but it's just, it's only ideas for each scene is like, let's do something crazy with this. Let's do the stunt. Let's hang out of the car windows. Let's hit each other with bike chains. Let's jump off this bridge and there's something very winning about that movie. Uh, is it a great movie of, of 
Of course not. I mean, how do you, it's one of those things. It's like, how do you want me to define great here? It's that movie's really something is what I would say about that movie is that movie is something, not nothing. Kristen, have you seen it? I have not seen it. Well, watch it immediately and then text me afterwards. I will. It's it's a good, I don't normally recommend ever watching movies this way. It's a good to just like, you can put it on the background and half watch it kind of movie too. And like, oh, something interesting is happening again, because it does have like Mad Max, it has some big dead patches in it where like he's hanging out in the cemetery talking with people about who the fuck knows what, you know? Okay, so that's Deadbeat at Dawn. Uh, Chris, let's hear your second pairing recommendation. Um, I also picked a biker movie with folk horror elements to it. But before I mention that, I wanted to, I was just now when we were talking, thinking about a movie to to mention, this isn't my official second pairing, but have either of you guys seen Bellflower from 2011? It's about these two guys who are obsessed with Mad Max and start building their like own interceptor type pursuit car and like flamethrowers and post-apocalyptic stuff like out in the desert like two guys hanging out and it's about them being like living in this like emotionally arrested like fucking around with the bros state and having a woman sort of come and and in between them of like oh we're this is we're living in this fantasy land that's like built around violence you know what I, and built around like this this very um juvenile sense of cool you know and and basing our lives around what's cool or not cool and having real adult relationships is different than that it's a very interesting movie i would not say it's great but if you like mad max it's worth seeing you'll probably hate it because it is it's sort of a critique of like loving movies like mad max in some way but it's very interesting to see but my actual pairing is this movie called Werewolves on Wheels, which is a, a biker picture where the bikers, you know, after doing what bikers do in these movies, which is tumbling around in the dirt with each other and then harassing a gas station attendant, they go to a church and find a midnight mass occurring by black-robed monks who are doing some kind of blood rite. And then the bikers start go flee and they go out to the to the desert and they start getting killed off one by one and then very late in the movie it's revealed that it's a werewolf killing them all that one of them's a werewolf killing them all and it's a very um it looks almost exactly like the classic universal werewolf and the performance to it and they go back to kill the monks but when they arrive there's a very confusing ending so um it's it's total uh trash it's a bad movie it's actually a sequel to the losers which i mentioned before to nam's <laughs> angels or it features the same biker gang that's in it and it's it's a good example of like if you're not really into mad max watch one of these biker movies and then you will come away appreciating mad max so much more like let me show you what garbage so much of this stuff is and it's you know it's fine it's you know an hour and a half long there's probably seven minutes of interest within it but it's it also shows that there is this weird intersection these movies don't know what to do with the bikers who are anti-heroes like in mad max where the bad guys take over the movie the bikers are these overtly bad shithead guys 
who the movie has to say, these are our heroes. It's like Psychomania. It's where it's kind of has to say, these guys are our heroes, even though they have no redeeming qualities whatsoever because of Easy Rider. That's what Easy Rider does is, you know, they're going to to sell the cocaine in New Orleans. That's their only plan. They're not good guys in any way. The cocaine was their nest egg. But that's that's sort of what all of these biker movies try and figure out what to do with these guys. And it's funny that Mad Max has the same problem of what do we do with Mad Max for the second half of this movie, even though he's not the biker? It, it somehow absorbed the problems of biker pictures into it of not knowing what to do with the characters and having a ton of filler and not having much of a, a story or a plot for it. Um, and so, you know, it's bad. It's worth seeing as a curio, if you're at all inclined to see it, you know, watch it. But I think it's a, I think it's a good pairing with Mad Max also to Mad Max is weird and original and a new take on the biker genre that completely feels like it's reinventing the wheel. As Danny Perry says in his book, it feels like a completely new thing. Werewolves on Wheels is what happens when you've somebody trying to be original and find a new take on this genre and find something to do with it and finding bad answers to that question. Okay, so this has been on my watch list for a long time because the director, Frank Levesque, directed one of my favorite exploitation movies, Sweet Sugar. Uh, it stars the buxom Phyllis Davis, who is also in um, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Uh, and it, it's uh, Sweet Sugar. It's, it's like a women in prison movie, except they're in a work camp in Central America working in like sugar cane fields. Yeah, he did it before. Uh before sweet sugar he did it the year before it apparently i have not seen it this movie did not cause me to run out and watch his other movies okay Kristen, let's hear your second pairing recommendation uh i'm gonna recommend a movie that was mentioned sorry chris it's dead and driving but <laughs> by brian <laughs> trencher smith uh 1986 I, I feel like this movie could definitely be in the same time and place as Mad Max like in another town or something it also has the like society is kind of starting to collapse but there's not really been a, an apocalypse um in this movie they basically unemployed quote unquote young people although the <laughs> lead is played by like a 36 year old I think he's trying to be like 20 but whatever um, unemployed people are locked up in the drive-in um, and they're still playing movies and there's a restaurant and everything and so a lot of everyone there is like totally chill <laughs> with being there <laughs> except for uh, the main character um, in this movie they also have like a car culture um, and I mean yeah other than so so there's a lot of problems with this movie. There's basically no plot after they're in the drive-in, except for this one guy wants to get out and no one else does. But the production design and art direction on this movie is amazing. So I think if you like think of it as uh, happening in the Mad Max world and then just <laughs> watch it as like atmosphere that's it's worth it it's worth it <laughs> i don't want the the production design to go unseen so just put it on as a mood piece it's worth after seeing Mad Max. that that movie's worth <laughs> seeing for sure uh i love how on the arrow blu-ray the cover looks like it's going to be this like uh, the movie's going to be this stylized neon drenched 
80s film, but instead it's just like droll and depressing Australia. <laughs> they they make it seem like you would never want to go to Australia in a million years. You watch something like Wake and Fright and you're like, I would rather be dead than go to Australia. Ah, so good. Wake and Fright. I love Wake and Fright. It, it is weird how like my sense of Australia is like Cry Wolf and Cars That Ate Paris. It's not like anything because everybody in the world and my whole family's been visited australia and they're like it's fantastic everybody everybody who goes there has nothing but good things to say about it but movies have made it so i i don't think i would ever want to go get harassed by gangs of giggling guys with punk rock hairdos just walking down the street also in dead end drive-in you can see the man from hong kong is playing on the drive-in screen another <laughs> brian trenchard smith movie is playing on the drive-in screen anyway fun so that's dead end drive-in uh for my final pairing recommendation i uh i'm calling an audible like just just like 20 seconds ago since both of you recommended biker movies i think i'm going to go in the same direction and i would like to suggest uh tom laughlin's the born losers it's it's the first billy jack movie now uh billy jack is a movie that i really like uh, and you can listen to, I recorded with Larry Karaszewski about that back in the first season. Really great episode. Um, he has a lot of great insight on Billy Jack. Um, but honestly, I think I like the born losers even more than Billy Jack. And I think it's interesting, interesting how, uh, born losers was the movie that introduces this character, right? Billy Jack, but it's not until the second movie that Laughlin and Billy Jack like become this phenomenon. Right. Uh, but The Born Losers, it's really just your stereotypical biker movie that comes out in that period where we get a glut of those types of films, you know, Hell's Angels on Wheels, The Wild Angels, Saint and Sadist. Um, so like the mid to late 60s, uh, you know, Billy Jack, he rides into town on his bike. He becomes a protector of this young woman played by Elizabeth James um, uh, because this biker gang is terrorizing her. And it's, you know, it's a really standard plot, but Tom Laughlin, I think is fucking badass. Uh, have you, have either of you seen the born losers? I have only seen Billy Jack proper. I have not seen the born losers. Did you like it? It was different. Than I expected. I don't know if I would watch it again. I mean, I guess I would watch it again, but I probably wouldn't be like eager to watch Billy Jack again. Chris, uh, it's it's uh, I like Billy Jack a lot. You know, it's it's funny to think about Billy Jack. It's hard to overstate what a cultural phenomenon and hit Billy Jack was and how it's sort of lost to history. I think young people have no idea what Billy Jack was, but it was as as big as shit got it's as big as Easy Rider for sure. Um, is that true? I think I think they're comparable. <laughs> um, but Born Losers is fine. You know, I think that it's I think that it's um, him trying to figure out what he's going to be and how to make stuff work. I think it's a little, you know, one thing that when reading about Mad Max, you hear people say a lot of the time this movie, like a lot of biker pictures were the modern Westerns. And I'm always like, what are you talking about? Like biker movies have nothing to do with Westerns. Um, but Born Losers does a little bit. I think that he's both that and Billy Jack. You can see he clearly has 
Westerns on his mind, you know, and that going and protecting somebody in the small town and standing up to the forces of evil. I think that that, I think that that shit is on his mind. And I think that maybe that's where the cliche comes from is, is his films. It's more competent than a lot of biker pictures while still being fundamentally incompetent. Okay, so that's The Born Losers, and that's all we got. We did it! I, I just can't believe we went the whole episode with nobody saying, perhaps it's the result of an anxiety. <laughs> I can't believe we made it through the whole episode without that line getting brought up. Uh, Chris, where can people find you online? Uh, the Go to the pinksmokewebsite.com, www.thepinksmoke.com. We've kind of gotten out of using social media because we got shadow banned and our views and impressions went down to like a tenth of what they were overnight and so you know don't go to man like fuck twitter like don't go there anymore um and we don't we don't really we don't really use it i'd say just go to the website is the best way to uh to find our stuff go directly there look at our podcast the pink smoke podcast i do with john cribs is on Spotify and SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts, everywhere that they have podcasts. Go listen to them. And subscribe to our Patreon for the reason of we pay our writers a fair wage. And in order to pay them, we have to have this Patreon. And we don't want to be one of these companies. Like if you work, a lot of those people you follow and you read their work, sort of independent film sites, pay somewhere between zero and $50 for like 2,000, 3,000 word articles. It's gross exploitation. Since we don't do that, subscribe to our Patreon so we can pay people for their time and what they're worth. And Kristen? I'm still on Twitter, snail with an E <laughs> on the end, um, and I'm at uh, on Instagram at cinema snail with an E on the end. <laughs> Make sure you check out the show description for the links. You can find this show on Twitter and Instagram at Cole Movies Pod. You can follow me at AK Donland Twitter, Instagram, and Letterbox. That's A K D O N E L L Y. Uh, we're back in I don't know six, eight, forty nine weeks. Uh, who knows? <laughs> uh, it's always sooner than later. Uh, but it's time for a break, folks, and we'll be back, uh, you know, I don't know, in a couple months, whatever. Chris and Kristen, I can't thank you both enough for ringing out the season with me. Thank you so much for having me on for the finale. This is this is great. It's always fun talking with you. Every time I'm, I'm on your show, I'm like, oh, man, this guy actually knows how to run a podcast, not like us. Like, what are we doing? <laughs>